Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. First things first, let's thank you guys for the overwhelmingly positive response to last week's episode, which was with our old friend and TPE coach, Andrew Brokus. Um, I'm very happy to tell you that there was so much material from that episode that we actually have part two of that for you today. So this will be another hand from the $3,500 Borgata Winter Open, uh, which is part of the World Poker Tour. So uh, without further ado, let's finish off our interview with the one and only Andrew Brokus. This is towards the end of the night. This is the 400, 800, 800 level, which is the last level that we played on, on day 1A. I'm beginning the hand with, I guess, about 100K, and I think my opponent has about 70K to begin the hand. Um, so even even his 70K is, is above average. My 100K is, is well above average. Um, I am under the gun with ace-10 offsuit at a nine-handed table. And this is a hand, I think, that's probably a mix uh, in, in theory, like the equilibrium play when you're this deep. So as you get shallower, this becomes a, a more and more playable hand to the point where if you have like 20 big blinds or even 30 big blinds, you should probably always be opening this under the gun. Um, when you're 100 big blinds deep, ace-10 or more than 100 big blinds in this case, ace-10 offsuit is a much less good hand and you have less incentive to open it. Um, I think that in theory, this is likely a mix between raise and fold, which means that raising uh, has zero EV in theory. And the way that I'm going to make the choice about whether or not to open is going to be based on like the table conditions in a way that it wouldn't be. Like if I had ace-king, I'm going to open. But when I have ace-10 offsuit, I'm going to sort of assess like who's in the big blind, who's behind me, et cetera. So, so Andrew, can yeah, I stop yeah. you real quick? Um, can you talk a little bit about why it's such a, a, a necessary open when I have 20 or 30 blinds, but it's worse to open when I have 100? Uh, yeah, it has to do with the idea of making the nuts. Um, Ace-10 offsuit has a very hard time making the nuts when you're 100 big blinds deep because the nuts would have to be like exactly a straight or maybe top two pair. But, you know, you're not really going to be able to stack. Even if you get like ace-ace-x or 10-10-x, maybe 10-10-x, like there's very few boards where you're going to be comfortable stacking off for 100 big blinds when you have ace-10, right? So when you're deep enough that you're going to need a better hand than top pair to play a large pot, ace-10 is not doing a lot of work for you. When you're shallow, um, ace-10, and, and like if you have 30 big blinds, there might be one guy at the table who has like, eight big blinds or something where like ace 10 is going to be okay if he does decide to stick it in and you're like pot committed to call him um you know you want to have a hand like that rather than uh like pocket twos for instance which is a hand that would be more useful when you're deep and less useful when you're shallow because pocket twos can make a hand that you want to play for 100 big blinds but um most of the time it's not a hand that you want to play for 20 or 30 big blinds great yeah in recent episodes i've been talking a lot about how we all know that we should play most of our hands in position and that position is so important in no limit hold'em position is everything and then the solvers are telling us to open hands like king queen jack 10 like all these hands that we're supposed to open under the gun uh, so how do I sort of negotiate 
those two seemingly conflicting ideals. So here, here's what's kind of going on here. Um, your opponents should be giving a lot of like respect, essentially, to your under-the-gun raises. Like You should mostly be raising very strong hands under the gun, and your opponent should be respecting that by playing pretty conservatively when you open under the gun, uh, not three-betting you very often, um, making some tight folds both before and after the flop, etc. So that gives you some additional incentive to, like, if your opponents are folding a lot, that gives you some incentive to open some hands that aren't quite so premium. Um, when we're opening ace 10, definitely the best case scenario is everybody folds and we just win the pot pre-flop. Or uh, when we're opening these like weaker hands, these bottom of range hands. And one of the nice things about ace 10 is it does block some of the stronger hands that could give you action. So again, like compared to uh, seven six suited, for instance, which blocks a lot of hands in your opponent's folding range, ace 10 offsuit blocks a lot of hands in your opponent's calling or re-raise ranges. So it does have some good blocker effects. It has decent equity when called again like if you compare it to six seven suited if you get flatted by a hand like pocket eights or pocket nines ace ten has like a fighting chance of winning the pot and seven six suited is in very bad shape right right okay yeah that's great because the conclusion i've basically drawn is that at a tough table i'm folding hands as strong as ace jack offsuit uh and at a at a, a table that's maybe not so tough i would have no problem opening you know, king, queen, ace, ten, hands like that that are kind of in the upper marginal. So, yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I find it interesting that every single person who knows, teaches, watches, no limit hold'em says position, the power of position. You have to be in position. And then I think we're all playing quite a few hands up front. Yeah, and that's also more true um, when you're deep, right? Position matters more when you're 100 big blinds deep. When you're 20 big blinds deep, it's not such a liability to be out of position. Because again, like when you make top pair, you just go with it. <laughs> when you make top pair and you're 100 big blinds deep, you're going to have some tough decisions. And you know, position is most helpful when you have tough decisions. It's not such a tough spot to be in when you know holding top pair and, and 20 big blinds. Yeah, obviously. And actually, that's that's what I thought your answer was going to be. When I asked you what's the difference between raising under the gun with ace-10 with 100 blinds or 20 or 30, I thought you were going to say because your positional disadvantage won't be as problematic when you're shorter stacked. Right. That, that's wrapped up with it. Okay. Great. So what kind of table was this? Uh, same table you've been at all day? Yeah, I was at the same table all day. Um, all three players on my left had been at the table all day, and uh, they were all quite good. Um, so I mostly had been erring on the side of folding when I had these kinds of close decisions, like a decision that I thought it, a solver would play as a mix. I was generally erring on the side of folding because of who was on my left. That was most true when I was in late position. Uh, when you're under the gun, it's not quite so easy. Like the players on your left don't matter quite so much because just like when under the gun opens, under the gun one doesn't get involved in that many pots, right? Just like most of the time that player is going to be folding, even if he's good. Whereas when you open the cutoff, the, a good player on the button can um, potentially play quite a few hands against you. And so you have to be more conservative opening your cutoff with a good player on the button. Opening under the gun with a good player under the gun one, he just doesn't have as much influence on you because he's still going to be folding when he has like eight, six suited or something. Good point. 
Um, so I wasn't super concerned about these these tough players. I mean, they're definitely reducing the EV of me opening the hand, um, but I was a little bit more concerned, especially because we're talking about you know playing in, in position um, with who was in the the big blind, right? If I do go to the flop, that's the person I'm the single most likely person for me to to go to the flop against would be that player in the in the big blind. And in this case, the player in the big blind, I thought it was one of the weaker players at the table. So I was kind of torn between on the one hand, tough players on my left mean I should be playing tighter. On the other hand, a uh, weaker player in the big blind means I should be opening up my range a little bit. And given that I was under the gun, I thought that the player in the big blind was going to matter a lot more often than the players under the gun one, under the gun two, under the gun three were going to matter. Great. So you're really looking to play pots against the big blind. Yes. Uh, or I think that's like where the... So, I mean, this is still not going to be a whole lot better than folding. Like, I'm not expecting that I'm getting a ton of EV out of opening ace-10 here. Uh, we're talking about a small difference between raising versus folding. But I thought the reason that it would be slightly plus EV was that the um, the times that the pot ends up heads up against the big blind, which is a, a fairly common outcome, um, the times that that happens, I thought those were going to be, like, extra favorable for me, more favorable than a solver would expect them to be because my opponent was going to make some mistakes. Okay, well, last question about this. Do you now wish that you hadn't opened Ace-10 under the gun? I'm just kidding. <laughs> How about, is, is it okay with you if I don't open Ace-10 under the gun when I have three good players on my left? Is that okay with you as, as one of my teachers? Yes, uh, okay. I, I think it's it's marginal at best. It, it's hard at this stack. Let me let me emphasize again at this stack depth. If you have thirty big lines, it should be a one hundred percent open. Um, but at at this stack depth, yeah, the the potential EV gain is small at best. Okay, great. All right, so we open. It's four hundred, eight hundred, and you made it. I made it sixteen hundred, which. Okay. Uh, from early position, or sorry, I made it. Um, yeah, I made it sixteen hundred from early position. I'm not too concerned about um, the size of my rate. Like I'm fine pricing in the big blind. I, you know, that's kind of what I'm playing for, anyways. To play a pot, not not that I want him to call, but like the fact that I'm pricing big blind with a lot of hands is not of that much concern to me. And I do want to reduce my um, my loss essentially in, in, in the scenario where I'm called or re-raised. I'm expecting to lose the pot, and so I want to lose less when that happens. The nice thing about multi-way pots, which you know, pre-flop pots are usually multi-way, uh, is your raise size is not the main factor that's constraining players on your left from entering pots. So, like when I open under the gun, whether I open to sixteen hundred or eighteen hundred or two thousand. It's having a little bit of an effect on what under the gun one does, but the bigger factor for him is that there's still seven players behind him. Like that's the main thing that's constraining him from playing a hand like eight six suited more so than the pot odds that I'm offering him. Yeah, we can remember you know many many years ago when the standard opening bet was three four or even five times the big blind. When people started min raising, all of us interpreted that like might as well play it as though he had limped. Uh, but yeah, obviously poker has changed a lot since those days. But yeah, you watch like the 2003 main event. They're opening, you know, four or five X on on the regular. So after all this talk about how under the gun two isn't going to get involved in the pot too often, uh, under the gun two three bets me. Oh great! <laughs> um, <laughs> I make it sixteen hundred under the gun two three bets, and in my head, I, mean, I just see him loading up a three bet, and I'm like, okay, well this pot's over. Like I'm just going to be folding. Um, but he makes it forty two hundred. Why and, would he make it so small like that? Um, I think it could be the same factor like like i was saying before that um that the size of his three bet like one of the things he's looking to accomplish with his three bet um is not just to push an equity advantage against me or potentially generate fold equity against me but to um 
to drive out other players behind him. So if he, like, let's suppose he has, like, ace-queen. Or if he's on the button, maybe he just calls with ace-queen because he's not that concerned about the blinds calling. He's going to have position on them. But if he's under the gun, too, and he's holding ace-queen, it's pretty bad for him if somebody overcalls behind him. So he has some incentive to three-bet. At the same time, he's not really expecting that ace-queen is going to be, like, a big equity favorite against my range. So it's not like he's eager to shovel, shovel a lot of money into the pot against me. What he's really trying to do is sort of, like, isolate me um, even if even if I never fold to his three bet, he's mostly trying to like isolate me and push the other players out of the pot. Right, right. So again, his sizing doesn't matter that much because it's it, you're even if you call, he's okay with that. He's going to be in position in what's now an inflated pot. I don't see this play a lot though. That seems like a really small three bet. I, I agree. Um, I I also don't see it that much. I think a lot of people. Like I, I, this just struck me as a guy who's like savvier than the average bear. Um, he's seen my. I I, I kind of had this feeling. I don't know if you get this when you're playing with people. Sometimes maybe you have a better memory for people than I do. But I, often I see people and I'm like, uh, that guy looks really good. I'm pretty sure I like. He's like some name, like someone that if I heard his name, I'd be like, oh, that's what that guy like. There's like there's a lot of names in the poker world. I don't actually know what they look like. Um, so I'm pretty sure if someone told me this guy's name, I'd be like, whoa, it's that guy, and he's like probably a pretty big crusher. But I didn't actually know what his name was. I could just tell from the way that he was like talking and carrying himself and the fact that he looked kind of familiar to me i was like i'm pretty sure this guy's a crusher but i don't actually know what his name is 100 percent. that happens to me every time i go to borgata i'm like i know this guy but i don't know this guy yeah 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 that happens a lot all right well you know i, I hate having ace 10 out of position against a player that is an unidentified crusher in all likelihood <laughs> and yet i'm too compelled by these pot odds i think i just have to call I mean, your other choices, you could put in a big four bet. Um, you do block some hands that, I mean, you, you could give him a hard time. But it's yeah. just, it's I'd, hard I'd be a lot more inclined to do that if I were suited, I think. Um, at this stack depth, I think even four betting ace 10, I'm still, even in a four bet pot, I'm still not really going to feel that comfortable stacking off if I make top pair. No, no, um, no. It would basically be turning your hand into seven deuce, I think. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I think I want to be suited if I'm going to do that. Okay, I like to have seven do suited. <laughs> 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 All right, so yeah, I guess I guess the play is to call, but I sure don't like it. Yeah, and I'm actually wondering now if I didn't either. I opened to eighteen hundred or in game. I was thinking I'd open to eighteen hundred because sixteen hundred to forty two hundred is actually. I pro- I feel like I should fold to that three bet. Um, so I think I may have recorded my notes wrong. I, I think I opened to eighteen and he made it forty two, which is why I felt. Um, I thought compelled to call. Yeah, and for the record, if I had opened to sixteen or eighteen, and somebody made it forty-two, I would call either way. Uh, so but still, I'm, yeah, I'm not happy. I'm not happy either way. But I'm just hoping we flop no, a whole no. lot of diamonds or something. And, I mean, the way I would encourage people to think about this is the same way that you think about like peeling from the big blind with a bad hand when you're getting like five to one odds, which is I, I'm probably going to lose the pot, but every once in a while something great might happen. I'm getting a good enough price to sort of see if that great thing happens right if i happen to you know just like really spike the flop or at least pick up enough equity to call like one small bet again um yeah it, it's a pot odds call like you are probably going to lose the hand but that doesn't mean you should fold because you're getting a really good price i okay. think that's that's the mistake a lot of people make is they just say oh this is a bad hand i'm probably going to lose i'll just fold and you know the i'll just fold doesn't logically follow from i'm probably going to lose you, you you do have to ask yourself what price am i getting yeah, I mean, we're here to take risks that are c- calculated and the reward that's available, whether you raise to 16 or, or 18, to me, the reward is too great. So I have to call. Uh, so I did call 
And the flop was Jack of Diamonds, Eight of Diamonds, Four of Spades. Okay, and we have the Ace of Diamonds, Ten. We do of... have the Ace of Diamonds. Okay. The Ten for the the suit wasn't relevant, but we have the the Ace of Diamonds, which when there's two diamonds on the board, that's a big deal. Okay, so we have all kinds of backdoor action going on here. We have an overcard. We have backdoor diamonds. We have backdoor straight possibilities. Um, it's one of those ones where, you know, if he makes a big bet here, it's going to be an easy fold. If he makes a small bet, it's a bit more of a decision. Because once again, like we do have an outside chance of winning the pot, either through improving or, you know, the ace of diamonds is just a valuable blocker on this board. It means he doesn't have ace king of diamonds. He doesn't have ace queen of diamonds. He doesn't have ace 10 of diamonds, ace five of diamonds. There's lots of, you know, ace x of diamonds hands that are going to be in his range for continuing to say a check raise on this board. Um, or if we do check call the flop, then your know, diamonds come later. Having the ace of diamonds in our hand is going to be a really valuable bluffing card. So I think it's likely that, so what happened here? I, I check there's, um, I think there's about 10K in the pot, and he bets 3,300. So he bets like a third of the pot. Okay, so that's that's a tiny bet, but this is something we're seeing a lot more in tournament poker. And just because he made it 4,200 before the flop doesn't mean he has to make it 4,200 or more on the flop because, to you know, on some level, you either can call a bet of virtually any size or you can't. Right. And so, he, he can do a little more thinly for value too. Like you know, he can bet thirty three hundred here with like pocket tens, whereas he wouldn't want to bet like seventy five hundred with pocket tens. Because he can't get called by worse. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Right. 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 Okay. So you know, old Clayton from three to five years ago would take every one of these little bets and always check raise them, because in three to five years ago, no one bet thirty three hundred here with a hand like uh, pocket queens or. Yeah, anything strong enough to call a check raise. So it was basically free money back then. But now it seems like a lot of this, as some people call it, down betting is the norm. So check raising automatically is not nearly as profitable as it was in, say, 2015. Yes. And this is a player I would expect to be balanced in this in this situation. So, you know, when I say that this is the kind of bet he would want to make if he had tens, uh, I don't mean to say that he only has tens. Oh, when, right. When he's he balanced. Bet. Right. Yeah. So, and, and the thing is, like, the fact that he's going to make the bet with tens, you're right. I mean, it does give us some incentive to check raise because we should expect that, like, the a part of his range that benefits from making this kind of bet is a kind of hand that's going to hate getting check raised. So the thing is, then that gives him incentive to also include hands in his in his small betting range that do want to get check raised. Like the fact that the, the presence of tens in his range gives us incentive to check raise, and that in turn gives him incentive to put hands that want to get check raised into his small betting range in order to make us indifferent to check raising. And the cat and mouse just keep running around in circles until somebody catches somebody else. <laughs> or until somebody has a blocker. That's the magic of blocker. Right. So, you know, when we say that he's going to have a balanced range for continuing to a check raise, that's assuming he doesn't know our cards. Right. So he, he's going to consider um, like a lot of his hands that are going to be continuing to a check raise are like ace of diamonds uh, or ace king of diamonds, ace queen of diamonds, ace ten of diamonds, ace five of diamonds. Those are all like important components of his range for calling or three betting against the check raise. And so having a blocker means we have like a magic bit of information. We know that he doesn't have this chunk of hands that's going to be continuing to a check raise. So if he constructs his range in a way that makes us indifferent to check raising when we don't have a blocker, then check raising when we do have a blocker, it should be plus EV. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we can fold here, even though we don't have a pair yet. We just have a little too much going on here. And he's offered us good odds to call. 
but it's also because of stacks as they are. What are the stacks here? Um, so at this point, I think he has like 70 or yeah, he, he, he has about 70 K in his stack. Um, so I guess he had more like 74 to start the end. He has about 70 K in his stack and I have, uh, like 95. Right. So we could, we could check raise without necessarily worrying about him shoving right here and now. Well, it's also fine if he does shove. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen very often, but one of the nice things about check raising this hand, whereas, you know, if you check raise like 10-9 and he shoves, that's kind of gross because now you either have to, you know, either you're calling it off from pretty far behind or you're folding away a lot of equity. The nice yeah. thing about check raising a hand like this one is, you know, if he does happen to shove, okay, it's an easy fold. Like it's, um, you're not giving away a lot of equity folding to a shove. I don't think it happens very often or even fold into a three bet. Um, I mean, I don't think it happens very often, but if he were to three bet, you know, th this is not a hand that's fairly much from that our equity against this three betting range is very bad right right even a really tiny three bets this guy likes to make small bets so if we make it say if we make it like uh twelve thousand and then he makes it you know, he can make it twenty thousand anyway. yeah so <laughs> and then i guess we would hate it but i think we'd have to fold even to that yeah, because exactly. it's, it's and you'll see that sometimes where the uh the three bet of the check raise can be very small and still has the same value as a bigger one. Mm. Anyway, uh, what did you decide to do? Uh, I did check raise, and it was exactly the number that you chose. Um, I, oh. I think you're right that this is not a hand to fold. In, in fact, I think it's likely that we're not supposed to ever fold when we have the ace of diamonds in our hand in this spot. Um, we either call, I mean, we shouldn't be calling preflop with a hand like ace of diamonds, five of clubs, or like that shouldn't even be in our range. So like when we do have the ace of, a bare ace of diamonds, we should generally have a big card going along with it, or we have two diamonds, which are obviously never folding. So um, I, I think like the, the choice is only between calling and, and raising. I don't think folding is an option here. Um, I chose the raising line. I think having the backdoor straight draw to go along with my ace of diamonds uh, makes raising a little bit more appealing. I'm not entirely sure the like blocker effect whether because I mean on the one hand, like I was mentioning, pocket tens is a hand that would you know really hate to get check raised here, and I am blocking that. On the other hand, like the kind of hand I want him to fold might, I mean, the other hands I want him to fold, you know, like ace king or ace queen offsuit could be in his betting range, and so. And much more often than ace-10 offsuit will be. So, um, like, check-raising here when I have ace-king or ace-queen with the ace of diamonds, I'm blocking more of his folding range. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Like, the blocker effects are getting sort of complicated here. So I don't know for sure whether this is, like, a better check-raising candidate than ace-king or ace-queen with the ace of diamonds would be, but I do think it's a good check-raising candidate. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think I like the play. I, I think in his shoes, he's got a tough decision with ace-jack suited. I mean, he's not happy with aces. Like, he's not, I mean, I mean, he's, anything, not, he's yeah. not folding. Yeah, but I mean, you're not you're not happy to this check raise. Basically. I mean, unless he has pocket jacks, which he very plausibly could. I mean, pocket jacks, or I, I kind of doubt he would make this play preflop with pocket nines. But if he did, like, only if he has like a set or uh, or set pocket eights with the other the other set. So I mean, it's really right. just like pocket jacks or the nut flush draw are the only hands where he can really be like he can really feel downright good about the situation and um and we block the nut the nut flush draw so it's really just like pocket jacks is the only hand where he's not hitting life when we check raise yeah that makes me like it even more yeah i like this play a lot all right so we make it twelve thousand. i assume he calls uh, he calls and uh my plan was 
basically just like continue on turns where I improve my draw and give up on turns where I don't. So, you know, deuce of clubs turns, I'm check folding. Uh, if a diamond turns, I'm barreling. If a nine turns, I'm barreling. A queen is kind of a tricky, like just picking up a gut shot would be kind of a tricky case. I'm not real sure what I would do about those. It's okay to not have a plan for every single turn card, but you should think about the common ones and you should know, you know, basically like I'm giving up on blanks, I'm barreling on diamonds and nines. And then there's a few like X factors out there. Okay, so we have about 60,000 behind and something like 30,000 in the pot. Am I close with these numbers? Yeah, I think it'll be, if, if when he calls the check raise, I think we're going to be looking at 34 in the pot and 58 in the effective stacks. So stack to okay. pot ratio a little under two. All right. All right. So what's the turn? Uh, it's one of those cards I did not plan for. Uh, the turn is an offsuit ace. <laughs> it's funny you know i wasn't thinking about the uh the ace pairing my my ace i wasn't thinking about that either as as one of the yeah so that puts us in a weird spot i mean uh you've taken the lead in the hand by check raising on the flop but it doesn't mean you have to bet the turn but with most of your strong hands you will after you check raise the flop you you're mostly going to be continuing on the turn all right, you talk. You talk about this. I, I'm not, I wasn't ready for this card at all. You talk. Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 tough for exactly the reasons you gave. Like, there's, I could easily not have the best hand, right? I mean, it's not hard for him to have a better hand than mine. Um, I think, like, I mean, I guess I'm blocking pocket aces pretty hard, but it's in his range. Like, I mean, if he does have two aces, the the, the case aces, like, he's definitely playing them this way. So, like, that's in his range. I think pocket jacks is very much in his range. Uh, Ace jack is very much in his range. So, I like, I I definitely can't treat my hand like the nuts. I, I don't want to get all in here. Um, I think in general, this is a bad card for his range. Like, I think he's more likely to have. Uh, either jack x or you know pocket kings pocket queens they obviously are much more likely than pocket aces for him so i think in general this is a bad card for his range and it's there's a decent chance that i just turned the best hand and i'm now ahead um checking is dangerous though because this is gonna like the fact that it's a bad card for his range means that it's a card that i should be bluffing if I'm bluffing, right? Like if I'm, if I still just have a flush draw, if I check raise with like queen 10 of diamonds or nine, 10 of club, like I have some sort of draw. This is a great card for me to barrel precisely because it's a bad card for a decent chunk of his range. So it's going to be suspicious. I think if I don't bet to the point where like, I don't know, he might be good enough to just like take Queens and turn them into a bluff to get me off of, you know, a hand like this one, I don't know, like, or, you know, turn into a bluff on the river or something. I think I'm like giving away a lot of information about my hand. If I don't bet, um, I'm kind of telling him I have a hand that doesn't need to bluff, and I don't love that. At the same time, I'm not expecting to be in good shape if a lot of money goes. Like, if I if I make a large bet and he calls, I'm not going to feel good about my hand. Right. Yeah, so that sounds like we should consider a small bet. Yeah, I agree with not checking. I don't think checking is terrible. I mean... No, and I think against a weaker player, it's what I would do. Um, I my my concern was mostly related to like how an elite player is going to interpret that. Yeah. Okay. So you said there's thirty thirty four in the pot. Um, yeah, I guess. Well, I think it's weird to bet twelve again because you bet twelve already. I don't know why, but <laughs> it, it just feels weird to do that. Within the rules. Same bet. It's within the rules, but it feels it feels like I get exploited when I do that. You know, when you hear somebody say same bet, right? Or they just do the same number. It's it, he might be able to put me on a hand quite like the one I have. 
So I think we either we either need to go like fifteen, or what about going down to like ten? Does that is that too weak? Yeah, I I um my general answer when someone asks the question like that too weak or expresses a concern that something is too weak, my my general response is going to be so what? In other words, so like being weak by itself is not a is not a crime. Um, it's it's a question of what is it? What could he do about that? Right. If, right. if we bet eight thousand here, even if he says like hmm, that seems weak, like what's he going to do about that? Um, he could you know, turn a hand into a bluff and raise, you know, you take something like queen jack and say, okay, well, I block pocket jacks, I block ace jack, I'll turn it into a bluff and, and raise here. And that's fine. I mean, what that would mean is it would just give us incentive to also make this small bet with some hands that would invite a raise. In this case, I think what my hand is most going to look like if I bet small is ace x of diamonds, right? That I, I check raise the flop with a nut flush draw. Now I've binked top pair. And I'm in basically the same situation that I'm in with, with this hand, which is that I'm thinking, well, you know, I probably have the best hand. Um, checking is going to both let him pot control and potentially draw out when he has like queens or kings and also just um, sort of reveal my hand. So I don't really want to check, but I don't want to throw a lot of money into the pot either. So, you know, I could, I could be thinking exactly the same thing with a nut flush draw, which even though I'm not hoping to get raised when I have the nut flush draw, I'm not planning on folding either. So I don't think it's that trivial for him to just be like, oh, that guy just has top air with a bad kicker. I'm going to raise his bet because there's a very good chance I have a, a flush draw to go along with and I'm never folding. Yeah, your hand feels like a flush draw a lot, and a lot of right. your flush draws will have the ace of diamonds, which we know he doesn't have because we have it. So, yeah, I like that thinking. And uh, basically the bigger point is that as long as you're balanced, you don't have to worry if somebody interprets your bet this way or that way because it won't always be one or the other. That's what balanced means. Right. I, I know that my bet is protected by other parts of my range, and it's not going to be trivial for him to just raise here. It's just like, oh, this guy has nothing I'm going to raise. He's obviously folded into a raise. Like, it's not true. There's plenty of my range is going to be hands that will not fold to a raise. I don't think any part of my range really benefits that much from betting large in this. Uh, in the, okay, That's not true. I guess if I had like pocket jacks or pocket eights, I don't want to bet large here. But I think I have plenty of hands that are, have incentive to bet small, but are also not folding to a raise. Right. So how absurdly small can we go? Um, I don't have a real strong answer. I mean, I bet 8,000. That's not based on a whole lot. Um, I don't have like strong theoretical backing for that. Um, that was an amount that felt good to me in the moment. It's pretty so, absurd. <laughs> 8,000 into 34. Well, <laughs> That's pretty let's small. Say let's say you're him and, and you're holding pocket queens or pocket kings. You know, is, right. is it trivial for you to call? Yeah, Especially you're like right. Knowing I can bet again on the river. Yeah, I mean, I think if I have pocket kings or pocket queens, I probably should call sometimes because you're just you're pricing him in that you might not have him beat. So he, he just needs to be good so rarely when you bet that small. But yeah, you do have the uh, the hammer of future betting. You know, which you could bet the river too. That, like that's essentially how you should answer that question of how small is you should pick a part of your opponent's range that you're trying to make indifferent and think about what bet size is going to make him indifferent to calling with say black queens or black kings maybe that number is 10 or 12,000 rather than eight but that's that's the question you should be asking no I like it I like the eight because I think in his shoes I would pretty much just freeze call with a lot of my value hands uh, I, I can't really bluff raise you because you're balanced and it really feels like you have a flush draw, which you're not going to fold unless I really go big. 
So yeah, that's this is kind of a brilliant bet. The more I think about it, I like this eight thousand a lot. Something I just never do bet that small in a turn. Yeah, I think betting small in general. I mean, whether it's a small or not, like betting small is a good solution to the situation of I probably have the best hand, but he doesn't have a lot of incentive to call with worse. Like the way you give him that incentive is by betting small. So when these cards peel off that are like much better for your range than your opponents, it's generally going to be correct for you to bet small in those situations with like much or all of your betting range, which is not necessarily your entire range, but like when you bet, you should often bet small in these situations where a card is like very favorable for your range relative to your opponents. And that's true whether you have strong or weak hands. Now be honest, Andrew, do you ever make this play with the, you know, pocket aces or pocket jacks. Yes. Okay. Um, in fact, I, I think it's you. a good, yeah. I mean, um, I would, I think with jacks exactly, I'd be more interested in betting larger because I want to, um, well, I, I don't block him from having ace X. I want to charge. I, I basically like, he can't have, it's much harder for marginal hand when I have pocket jacks. Um, and he's not going to have Jack X. I'm not so concerned about the queen, queen, king, king portion of his range. Um, I'm concerned about the like ace, x of diamonds and the you know, straight draw portion of his range. Um, or like you know, pocket eights is going to call a big bet for me anyway if I happen to like really cooler him. So I think with exactly pocket jacks, you have some incentive to bet larger, and then you can you can also balance that with some bluffs. Like if I had a, a weaker bluff than this, you know, I might want to bet larger. But um, yeah, I I think like pocket ace is an example of a hand that that has more incentive to bet smaller especially if you have the ace of diamonds where you know you're not really concerned about the the nut flush draw if he does happen to have jacks or eights there's a decent chance he'll raise you and if he doesn't have jacks or eights then it's very hard for him to have an ace so yeah i think this is a great spot to bet small with aces had i gotten this far with aces yeah that's great yeah this is uh as usual when i talk to you my eyes are being opened a little bit like i just i don't make this play not that small i mean i, I, I down bet sometimes but not like this all right so what does he do uh, he calls after okay. thinking, thinking for a little while in a way that I thought was genuine. You know, I thought he honestly was not. I mean, I, that doesn't necessarily tell me what what hand he has, but he could have been thinking about raising versus calling or folding versus calling. But whatever it was, like he he seemed you know genuinely like he had to think about what to do, and he decided to call. Okay, so when he calls that, I guess one disadvantage to getting called after having bet eight thousand into thirty four thousand is it, it's harder to define his range, right? Yes, I would say in that case, like that's what I want, um, because the more defined his range is, the stronger it is. Like, you know, if I pot it, I have a very good idea that he has a hand. And that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like I think defining his range is generally that information, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I just think like betting for is not a uh, not something you want to. Like, information should be more like a side effect of bets that you're making for other reasons, more so than like your reason for betting. Agreed. Agreed. Hundred percent. Okay, so he calls, and we still don't really know what he has, but we know what we have. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting some information from this. Like, he has a lot of incentive to raise with pocket jacks, for instance, and he didn't raise. Doesn't say for sure he doesn't have jacks, but I think jacks are, like, a good deal less likely when the turn doesn't get raised. He he had a lot of incentive to raise with, and he didn't do it. Yeah, agreed, because he does want to get value for his hand, protect against draws. So, yeah, it's not, like, a zero-information bet. It's just I feel like his... uh, the condensed part of his range, like the non, the non nutty part of his range, is still pretty wide and varied. Yeah, I, mean, so, I think it's mostly like kings, queens, jack x. Um, I don't know if he would ever have like ace, just ace king here. I mean, given that he can't have the ace of diamonds, it seems a little dicey for him to peel the flop check raise with just like ace king or ace queen. But 
I don't know. Maybe he does. Maybe, maybe he has ace king sometimes. Yeah, I think no. I, I think you're right. I don't think most players would call that check race with just ace king without the ace of diamonds. Maybe the king of diamonds, but yeah, agreed. The king of diamonds because the king of diamonds was the river. Oh, <laughs> great. Okay, Yet another so, card I was not planning for. All right, so. so we've been talking a lot. So what are the cards on the board again? It's a jack eight. Okay, it is uh, jack eight four with two diamonds and then an ace and the king of diamonds. And okay. I am holding ace 10 with the ace of diamonds. Okay, so now we mentioned on the turn when we bet 8,000 that part of your range for doing that is that you would have a flush draw. That helps protect you when you get raised on the turn, then you, you'll be able to call some of those turn raises if your opponent tries to exploit you by by always raising every time you bet 8,000 into 34, you're going to have some calls of that raise, and a lot of those calls will be with ace-x of diamonds. Yep. So, so now that the flush came in, this looks like a really good scare card because of all the things that our opponent has to be worried about, your hand feels like a flush draw. I've said that probably three or four times as we talk through the hand. And now it looks like a flush draw that came in. The question is, do we want to scare him? Or do we have sufficient amount of value with top pair that we just try to, you know, show it down? Right, because we could check, check, turn over the ace and win. Yeah, or, that would be, you know. The, yeah, okay, um, so, hmm. I don't know. I think this is too, to me, now, some people would say that I, I tend towards the uh, aggressive line too often and I take too many risks. But to me, this is just such a perfect card. I mean, he doesn't have a flush unless he has, what, like... Queen diamonds or something? That yeah, but... Unlikely pre-flop three bet. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like he has those hands when he makes it 42. I mean, I guess, as you say, being balanced is important, so he needs to show up with unexpected hands occasionally when he does this. But, you know, most of his pre-flop three betting from early position range isn't a flush now because the ace, we know where the ace and king of diamonds are, and he doesn't have either. And this is an important point about about being balanced and about board coverage also, which is that you don't necessarily want to plan for, be balanced for every possible run out. Like there is a cost to to doing these things. Um, And so the idea that like he needs to be capable of making flushes when both the ace and the king of diamonds are on the board, it could be correct. It might just be that like the cost of three betting queen, ten of diamonds, or actually the jack of diamonds also, because like queen, jack of diamonds would be a more reasonable three bet. So, you know, the fact that when the ace, king and jack of diamonds are all on the board, his opponent can correctly say, you know, you don't have a flush here. I can do some extra bluffing against you. Uh, Maybe... Maybe he just sucks it up and accepts, like, that's just a really bad run out for me, and when that happens, I get exploited a little bit. That might be the most plus EV thing for him, rather than giving up a bunch of EV in a ton of other situations by three-betting, like, Queen Town of Diamonds, just so that, you know, when this rare occasion ends up, he makes money by inducing my bluffs when he actually has a flush that I don't expect him to have. Like, this situation just comes up rarely enough that it's probably not worth sacrificing EV in a bunch of other situations just to, like, be able to play this situation better. Sure, like, maybe a 10-9 of Diamonds once in a while but it's not worth what it's costing you because how often is this actually going to happen like this exact run out yeah that's a really important point i think some people in the name of being balanced end up being exploitable (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean mean, you want to balance around common situation like you know when you check raise the flop and there's a flush draw on the board you want to make sure you have flush draws in your range and then if you have a check calling range you should also have flush draws in your check calling range you don't have to be prepared for like every single turn card you just have to be prepared for the you know 
common one. Like, you know, there's a lot of diamonds in the deck. Like, there's a decent chance the turn's going to be a diamond, and you need to make sure that you're prepared for that with both your check calling and check raising ranges. You don't necessarily have to be prepared for, like, exactly the deuce of spades. You know, the, the cost of preparing for one card might not be worth it. Uh, whereas, you know, it is worth it to prepare for, like, nine possible turn cards. That's a good point. And I think one that so many of us miss, everybody understands kind of generally the importance of being balanced, but I'm not sure that everybody is is quite there yet as far as what exactly that means. Yeah, it definitely doesn't mean, you know, you can show up with any hand in any situation. That's that's just being random. That's, that's not the same. Right, that's not valid. That's random. Any two cards. Any two will do. All right. Uh, I would have to bet here. Um, I, I have to. It's just it's too good of a scare card. I, and the question is, do we want to try to get value for our hand? I don't think we can really value bet top pair anymore, can we? No, I think like the fact that it's a scary card means we're not going to be able to thin value bet this hand. Right. Like, in fact, this this hand may be close to the bottom of our range. I mean, if you think about the line that I've taken, I I, I raised under the gun, peeled a three bet, check raised the flop, bet the turn. Albeit it was a small turn bet, but still bet the turn. And then like the most obvious draw on the board gets there. There's an ace and a king on the board. Like how weak can my hand be? I can probably have you know some combinations of 10-9 suited. One of them is a flush. There's three more. I probably don't check-raise the flop with 100% frequency with 10-9 suited. Uh, like, that's literally the only bluff I could have is, I think, 10-9. Like, que- even queen-10 turned into a straight if I you know, check-raise the flop with that. So it's just, like, it's extremely difficult for me to, um, to not have a hand here. Like, ace-10, no flush is probably about as weak as my hand could be. Kind of as a general note, your best bluffing candidates are when you are at the bottom of your range, even though we have a pair of aces. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even though the top pair is pretty close to the bottom of our range for the line you've taken. I would bet. So there was 34 and six, that was 50,000 in the pot. Well, what does he have left in his stack though? He has about 50,000 in his stack. Yeah, I guess I'm, he's got a pot size bet. If I shove, I think it looks weaker than if I try to make what looks like a value bet. Like if you bet like twenty eight thousand here, or thirty, like thirty thousand, right? Then he's, I think he's he's probably calling that less often than he calls a river shove for some reason. Yeah, I'm I'm a little wary of calling a small bet of. I, I know this isn't exactly what you mean. I just want to clarify for for the audience. Like I think there is a tendency to say like to, to assume that like big bets are necessarily weak or to say like you know a small bet is going for value a big bet is like obviously a bluff there's plenty of situations where you should bet big with your strong hands um in fact like the optimal play is often to make the largest bet that you can when you have the nuts and you can just balance that with bluffs the problem in this situation is that precisely because my range is so strong and it's hard for me to find bluffing candidates i'm not going to have that many bluffs and so i like i can't really support a large betting range here for value because i don't have that many bluffs to, and i have to worry about the possibility that my opponent has i mean when i'm holding the ace of diamonds i don't but in general if i'm bluffing here like if i were to bluff here with like 10 nine of clubs how do i know he didn't just river the flush like this is perfectly plausible that he played a sex of diamonds this way so one of the reasons i can't just make like a huge bluff is that when i have a flush he doesn't have a lot of incentive to call a large bet when I don't have a flush, he easily could have a flush, and that makes it difficult for me to, to bluff. So you know, it, it's more about this specific situation not being good for large betting. I wouldn't say in general, like, you know, a large bet is, is somehow the opposite of a value bet. Right. Uh, if you didn't make a flush on this river, you would want to bet an amount that he could actually call, and you know that he doesn't have a flush a lot, so we need to bet small enough that he might be enticed with a set or two pair. 
That's our value target when we have the flush. So we need to bet that signal on our bluffing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what did you do? Uh, I bet 35,000. 35. Okay. Which honestly might still be a little large. Um, I wanted them to fold. Honestly, if we're being honest, (laughs) I think I'd I'd rather err on the side of of too big than too small. If I'm going to make an error, I was, I was not at all sure what the like optimal size. I mean, I kind of gave you my thought process, but at the end of the day, like I was not entirely sure what the, um, what the best size was. And I figured if I was going to make a mistake, I'd rather make the mistake of betting a little too large rather than a little too small. Uh, I think among other things like that, I, I have no idea like how he views me or I, I didn't get the sense that he like recognized me or anything. So I mean, he may just think it like, I don't think he thought I was a recreational player, but you know, he may just think I'm sort of like a media, a mediocre pro or something where sometimes people get a little too excited when they have, uh, when they river the nuts and they just like make a big bet without really considering everything that I just said. So I don't, I, I think he's, more likely to to interpret a slightly too large bet as a value bet than as a bluff um and i definitely didn't mistake make the mistake of betting too small i mean we're trying to make them fold some pretty strong hands like part of the problem with the king river is not only that it improves our range but it also improves some hands that we were ahead of on the turn so like pocket kings i thought was a big part of his range for peeling the turn and now we're losing to that um king jack is another hand that is probably in his turn in calling range now we're losing to that so you know if, if he has ace king like that's another so you know i'm trying to get him to fold some pretty strong hands by betting 35k and i think it's possible that he will fold them but i don't want to give him a price where he's like oh he might be value betting worse i'll peel with kings you know like, that would be a disaster if he decides because i bet 30k not 35k and now he calls when he has pocket kings like that's a disaster you know when you when you watch tv you watch poker go or, or wherever else you consume your poker content and you see a player run an elaborate uh bluff sometimes it looks like well that guy's just out there walking on a tightrope hoping he doesn't fall but now here we have a situation where you know one of the players i respect most has put a lot of thought into making this play i mean i'm, I'm sure that you were mostly thinking please fold <laughs> but before you started thinking please fold you were thinking about you know your range and, and what things look like and what he could have or couldn't have and yeah i mean this is a i think an expert level hand at the end of the day i really like the small bet on the turn yeah, I think I would have bet you know, nitpicky. I might have bet a little bit smaller on the river, but I, I agree with not going all in because you when you're value targeting, there's like one hand that can call you, and that's ten nine of diamonds. And I don't even yeah. know if he ever makes forty two hundred with that pre flop. So, so yeah, uh, yeah, I really like this. I, I like this a lot. Um, I guess we should. Well, what what happened? Uh, he did fold after uh, after a lot of thought um which i mean i still don't like maybe he was thinking with queens i don't know like <laughs> i guess there's still a chance i did have the best hand but um you know the, the more he thought the more i was pretty sure i was rooting for a fold but you know like it could be one of those funny situations where you're like rooting for a fold and then he ends up here like that's happened to me before where like i thought i was making some brilliant bluff and he was like so sure i was bluffing that he called with a worse hand than what i was bluffing like, you know, <laughs> that happens like once or twice a year um but yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure I was, or I definitely was rooting for a fold. I'm pretty sure I was supposed to be rooting for a fold, and I, I did eventually get it. the um, The point that I would highlight about um, bluffing is like not only is it not arbitrary, but it's very heavily based on your cards. I think that's something a lot of people miss. 
is uh, people just ask, you know, should I bluff in this situation? And their their arguments for bluffing have nothing to do with the cards that they're holding. Like there was a hand posted on the on the TP forums recently where somebody was just kind of like, well, I think if I bet the river, he folds his one pair hand. So should I bet the water the river? It's like that's not um, like sometimes is the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, there there's hands that are better and worse for bluffing. And in this case, like the fact that we're holding the ace of diamonds is what makes this such an appealing bluffing hand because now we can be pretty confident the opponent doesn't have a flush. Had I gotten this far with 10-9 of clubs, you know, maybe I'm supposed to bluff with it. Maybe I'm not. Like we said, the, the risk of bluffing with 10-9 of clubs is that um, you can't, like your opponent easily could have a flush. And if you bet too big, then he can play a strategy of just only calling with flushes. And that's a good strategy for him um and this is it gets to the point about board coverage as well is like the, if you, you know, think way back to the flop and why i check raised with the ace of diamonds in my hand in the first place it was because um well in part because i know i'm going to be check raising when i actually have a flush draw or sometimes when i actually have a flush draw and that means that if you think about balancing like a flop check raising range right you, so you're going to check raise legitimately strong hands like if i flop a set or i flop two pair i'm going to be check raising that and then um if I, flood, if I check raise flush draws also, some people might think, okay, that's a balanced range, right? You've got your value bets, you've got your bluffs, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that sometimes the turn is a diamond or the river is a diamond. And then suddenly you don't have bluffs anymore. You only have strong hands. You have hands that were strong on the flop, and then you have hands that have become strong on the turn, and your opponent has no incentive to call you anymore because your your range is just entirely strong. So you know, the fact that a turn that a, a diamond is generally going to be a good card for your check raising range gives you means that you want to have some bluffs so that you can take advantage of all that incentive your opponent has to fold. And when you're bluffing a diamond turn, what do you want to have in your hand? The ace of diamonds. So you need to check raise sometimes with just the bare base of diamonds, just the bare ace of diamonds on the flop so that you will have the ace of diamonds in your hand when a diamond turns, or in this case, when a diamond reverse. Like this ultimately comes back to board coverage. Wow. Yeah, the more I think about it, I think this is one of my favorite hands you've ever played. The the depth of thought that, that goes into it and obviously you're not doing all this thinking at the table in the moment. Like you do a ton of homework away from the table. You produce videos where you analyze hands you played, you know, recently or the hands that other people played in a $5 rebuy tournament on America's <laughs> card room or whatever else. And so I think that all of that homework um, that you've put into being a coach and a teacher and, and everything and an author uh, I was going to say, writing a book, honestly, is a big help. Like, I, this stuff is more top of mind because I've been writing it. Like, it's not that I didn't know these concepts, but I definitely feel like I know them better now that I've been forced to, you know, explain them to other to other people. Like, the, the fact that I've been thinking about what exactly board coverage means and uh, how it plays out in various situations. Like, I've been looking at that every day for a while. And so I do feel like I have, you know, a stronger grasp on it now. And I'm recognizing, just, you know, intuitively, I know when I see a flop like this in a way that I didn't even a couple of years ago, like a few years ago, if you told me, oh, you have just the bare ace of diamonds on a two diamond board, it was not immediately obvious to me a couple of years ago that that means you never fold. Um, but now that I spent more time you know, with solvers and trying to make sense of what solvers are telling me, now when I see this kind of flop and I, I just, I instinct, I necessarily know whether I'm going to raise a call right away, but I know I'm like, okay, I have a hand I'm never going to fold because I have the ace of diamonds in my hand. And that wasn't something that was obvious to me before I started doing this kind of work. Interesting. Well, as usual, Andrew, you have blown my mind. Uh, <laughs> really great hand. And I just want to thank you for taking all the time uh, to be on the podcast and for sharing your, your hand and your, and your thoughts with us. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Clayton. Well, I know you have another hand you want to get to, but I think we're probably going to save that 
for a future episode because we're kind of out of time. So for now, uh, why don't you just tell people where they can get your book? Uh, you got two options depending on what format you want it in. If you want a paper book, uh, the only place to get that is at an obscure little site called Amazon.com. Oh, I never heard of that one. <laughs> no, they're, they're good. They're, uh, they're really taking off. You should check it out. Cool. Um, they, they got a lot of stuff. Not just books. They got all kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah, so Amazon.com for the paper book. For a um, ebook, if you want the Kindle version, you can get that from Amazon or directly from me at uh, www.nitcast.com. Uh, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com is where uh, I sell a lot of my stuff, not just books. We have some premium podcasts and things that uh, we've done as well. Um, so the book is available in various electronic formats there. You can get a Kindle format. You can get a PDF. You can get an EPUB, which you could read another readers besides the Kindle. Um, or if you want it, you know, like magically delivered to your Kindle the way Amazon does, then again, you have to buy it from Amazon to get that. So uh, Amazon uh, paper or Kindle is available from Amazon. Um, various ebook formats are available at nitcast.com. His name is Andrew Brokus, and the book is called Play Optimal Poker. Andrew Brokus, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, taking the time to listen to my hands. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. And for Andrew Brokus, author of Play Optimal Poker at Thinking Poker on Twitter. And for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.